guys. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we've got my good friend Steve Chapel of Elk Camp TV and Zero Hunt Fees, also Chapel Guide Service. Steve, how are you doing? Jay, I'm doing awesome. Um, I'm really looking forward to being on with you. It seems like we just get done with the hunting and then it's time to start thinking and planning for the next year and here we are. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's a little easier to swallow uh, how that rapid progression seems to come. We just get done with the late hunts and then all of a sudden we're now talking about putting in and applying for 2020. But it's, a, a, it's real easy to swallow when we're, you're sitting in snow and I'm sitting in, you know, it seems like it's been raining every day uh, down here in Arizona. Um, wouldn't you agree as far as, you know, anticipation for next year, uh, it's, it's easier to have this conversation when we know that, you know, the state, our state here in Arizona has been getting really good moisture. Yeah, absolutely, Jay. Uh, I was kind of getting concerned, you know, after we went through a really dry summer and basically had very little, if any, monsoon, and then the whole fall was dry. I mean, it really didn't start storming until <laughs> the day before the late rifle hunt started, as, as a lot of people know who are out there grinding through that. Um, but, you know, the, when that started and since then, we've got some really great moisture. So it's looking up for 2020. I'm really um, thinking that maybe we're going to have another good antler growth year, and it's going to be great. Yeah, you know, I think the interesting thing about last season was the fact that we had really good winter moisture and we had good antlers, but as you said, we had one of the worst monsoons on record, and the rut was uh, reportedly across the state spotty, a little hit or miss, you know, hot one day, off another and I think that's real indicative of that dry monsoon. The interesting thing, Steve, you and I have talked a, a lot. We used to be partners in the guide business a long time ago, and we've, we've been friends for a long time, is, you know, it seems like if you could have two good winter year, uh, you know, winter moisture years, that's when you ultimately see some of the biggest potential reached in some of these bulls. Uh, it'll be interesting if the summer lack of summer monsoon moisture set you know set them back nutritionally, where or if having two great winter moistures and obviously we're I mean we're not even to January one yet but so far right. December has been outstanding. Um, if we can put two back to back winter moisture years together, you know some of these bulls probably should reach maximum capacity or their potential, um, any thoughts on, or do you think that's a myth of having, you know, a couple back-to-back -back years of good winter moisture? Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that, Jay, and you really hit, hit on that, that it's all about their body health, it's all about their overall health, so they've got to have that good nutritional feed to produce good antlers, because the antlers are kind of the last thing that they do, they keep their body healthy first, so you know, this is really encouraging. Um, I was, I, you know, I was a little skeptical because looking at the pattern we were in for the winter here in the southwest, it says that we're in a neutral pattern, so we're not in an El Nino or a La Nina pattern. Um, but up to this point, I'm kind of liking this neutral pattern, and I hope it continues and that we keep, you know, getting these low-pressure systems to roll in. 
because, yeah, I think we could have two back-to-back -back great years. Um, I know being in Unit 9 again this last fall, I had kind of lost a little bit of faith in, in the trophy quality of the unit until this last year. You know, it was, it was getting to where it wasn't easy to find even 350-type bulls in the unit. But this last year, there were quite a few special bulls running around. Uh, you know, like we said, we just suffered from lack of water. Um, but there were sure some nice trophy bulls in the unit, and, and I'm hoping for the same thing across the state this coming year. You know, it is pretty crazy, you know, as many years as you've been going up uh, to particular units, especially Unit 9, and, you know, where you can sit back and watch it and watch the antler progression. You run a bunch of cameras and stuff, so, I mean, you have a lot of data to be able to go back and look at different years. But it is funny how, you know, let's, let's call it old-timers like us that have been doing it a long time can see that trend, you know, that, that, that I guess, tr what would be the word? It, it, the trans, um, anyway, you can see how it goes from one year to another to another and see how those bulls can fluctuate up and down. And then we have a year like last year where you feel like, okay, I'm back to the normal unit nine. But I think that just goes to show um, when, we, when Arizona has a good winter moisture year, our elk, it, it's directly shown in our elk antlers. I mean, it, I think there's no doubt about it that everybody reported across the board like, wow, this is what Arizona used to be. And it had been a few years since we had one of those, but it's always a good reminder when we do get those. Just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, totally. I think we start thinking that quality is slipping. I know I've been guilty of saying that because really it's the truth. It's what you're seeing in front of your face and on your trail cameras that the antlers just aren't there. Um, but, but like you say, I think it goes more toward, you know, the nutrition that the elk are, are getting or are lacking, and they've just been lacking it overall. And when we do get a great winter and great spring like we had last year, uh, we see it directly correlate into antler growth, and the bulls just blow up, so to speak, you know, and put on an extra 20 or more inches. And <laughs> so, you know, we just need to go into this winter. It's still early here. We're not even into January yet, but we've got a lot of time left, and I'm hoping that this good pattern continues, and I'll be praying for more moisture as we, you know, slip through winter and into spring. Yeah, and I, I also think, um, you know, getting this early moisture, you know, December, you know, late November, December moisture and getting that moisture on the ground early, I think that plays into elk hunters' favor as well rather than having a big late um, moisture like, you know, in late February, March, which is fantastic as well. But I think setting the tone early and getting that moisture into the ground and then any subsequent storms that we have from here on out just add to that. Whereas if the ground was really dry, um, you know, I just don't think those late storms help it as much as getting, you know, getting some moisture down in the ground early and then letting anything else come on top of that, you know, piling up to, you know, to our advantage. Totally agree with that, Jay. Yeah, it actually sounds like you come from a farming background because you're exactly <laughs> right. 
<laughs> if you get that early moisture and then you get more on top of that and especially snowpack on top of that good moisture, what that snowpack will do is it'll push that moisture down and push it deeper so then you've got more residual moisture in the springtime and it's going to last longer and result in better feed in the spring. So, yeah, you're spot on about that. Steve, before we get into jumping into Arizona and all the units um, and talking about zero hunt fees and your chapel guide service and your operation and doing some recap on last season, I um, want to talk to you about Elk Camp TV and the success uh, that it's had. Uh, I know I hear a lot of people talking about it. I see it on social media. Uh, I enjoy watching it. We tape the show and, and watch it. Um, but just talk a little bit about your show. Uh, talk about, you know, the, the progression of the show and, and, you know, where it's come from and, and, you know, where you're at now with it. You bet, Jay. Thanks. Um, yeah, we're coming to the close of Season 2. Uh, it airs on Sportsman Channel. Uh, the best times to catch it are Mondays at uh, the 10.30 a.m. Mountain Time or Saturdays at 7.30 a.m. Mountain Time. So, uh, the last episode of the year will actually be on tomorrow morning at 7.30 a.m. Mountain Time. Um, it airs July through December, so it's a two-quarter airing. Um, we, of course, filmed again this fall for the making of Season 3, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to have a, a lot of editing ahead of me <laughs> here this winter and spring to get prepared for that. Um, it, it's basically an all-elk, all-the-time show. I mix in, mix in maybe one mule deer episode per season because Sportsman Channel has a deer week on the 12th week. Uh, but other than that, it's all-elk. And with that presents a little bit of a challenge because I'm not going out and just hunting everything, so I'm not able to you know, make a, a ton of episodes because I'm not hunting wild pigs or, or you know, uh, hunting gators or fishing or shooting pheasants and, you know, everything that you can see on outdoor TV. So, um, you know, obviously we're very elk-focused, but I think with that comes, um, you know, kind of a niche, and, and I think we have a pretty solid following because of that because, you know, there's a lot of people out there who love elk like you and I do and think that they're a very special animal, and, you know, they're the best movie stars in the world because they're so vocal. So it's just a very enjoyable thing to, you know, to go out and film and, and, and then come in and edit and create this show. And I hope people who are able to watch it, uh, you know, really love it and um, that, you know, my passion for elk hunting just shows through it in the show. Yeah, it does for sure. Um, I love watching it. And I think a lot of people learn a lot from it uh, as well, watching how you know, you and your guides, how you guys set up on different animals and how your calling sequences uh, are. And, you know, I know uh, you and I, we used to lot, uh, watch a lot of uh, Will Primos videos and, you know, we've credited him with, you know, fueling our passion for elk hunting. Uh, you used to have a, a DVD series. Um, it actually started out as VHS tapes and then DVD <laughs> series, yeah. uh, Extreme Bowls. Um, talk about the, the progression of learning um, how to create extreme bulls videos and I think, you know, what, one through seven or eight different um, uh, yeah. videos and, and, and then how it's kind of helped you to uh, be able to do Elk Camp TV. Yeah, I think the main thing, Jay, that you touched on is just going back to 
you know, the 90s, um, you know, when, when Will Primos and Wayne Carlton were making great videos back then, just learning from those guys and getting the, the passion and the drive to, to do it and kind of watching what they were doing as a student, um, you know, learning how to set up and how to get great footage, basically with that three-man setup, having a hunter, a cameraman with a hunter, and then a caller back behind. That's just really the way to get great footage. Um, you know, obviously in the last few years things have progressed because, you know, now we have drones so we can get aerial shots. Of course, you know, <laughs> obeying the laws and staying outside of that 48-hour no-fly no rule. Um, so, you know, so we're able to get aerial shots, which are really cool to add on to episodes and time lapses and, uh, you know, what's called slider shots. Just all of that uh, creates kind of a, you know, more professional feel to it. You know, the Extreme Bulls videos were good, but they were kind of just the nuts and bolts of the hunt. Um, you know, just the hardcore setup. Here comes the bull in. Here we go to another setup calling another bull in. Um, but I do think that I've kept that same element as far as keeping the show hunting focused. I haven't gone and, you know, chased too many rabbits here and there. Um, you know, I'm not uh, showing too much of, of getting ready in the morning or brushing teeth or, you know, eating at the restaurant or this or that. I'm really trying to keep – because you have 22 minutes of content on an episode for a 30-minute show. You've got eight minutes of commercial time. So I really try to engage the viewers by keeping it really uh, fast-paced and, and hunting-focused, and I'll, I'll continue to do that. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you've got people at the Sportsman's Channel and the networks and what have you that want certain things, but I think the consumer speaks, and I think you know the success of your show speaks to the fact that you kind of cut to the chase. You're not doing tons of B-roll. You're doing just enough to keep it interesting and keep, you know, the, the higher-ups at the networks happy. But, I mean, ultimately, your job is to make the elk hunters happy and give them what they want. And, you know, I think you do a good job of having those bulls just coming and screaming down your, down your throat and, you know, blowing your hat off. And, you know, I think that's what people ultimately want to see. Yeah, absolutely, when they're watching an elk show. I know as a viewer, when I tune in and I look in the program guide and it says something about an elk hunt, you know, that's what I expect to see. And if I don't see that, I'm, I'm a little jaded at the end of it. So I try to think of it when I'm editing and, and, and keep that in mind. Um, I also want to, you know, just create a, a feel and a mood to where when people watch the show, they come away feeling good and they feel motivated to hunt elk. Um, you know, I want to maybe tap in their foot a little bit as they watch it with the music and, that, and just the feel that's, that's put into it. So um, it, it's just a lot of fun, and I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's real evident. Um, you know, for a little background for some of those listeners uh, that maybe this is your first episode or maybe you've just been listening for, you know, six months or so, uh, Steve and I have been friends. Uh, Steve, you always have to correct me on the year, but I think it's 96. <laughs> Five. <laughs> 95. Uh, yes. Steve's dad drew a Unit uh, 23 uh, rifle elk tag, and Steve and I met in 95. Steve, we're getting old. That's 24 yeah. years ago, buddy. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I mean, that was even before 23 was split into north and south as far as the early rifle hunt. There was 40 tags on that hunt. My dad drew it the very first time we put him in, if you can imagine that. So, oh, so no. not a 
out there take heart. Non-residents do draw tags. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, then Steve and I just forged a great friendship, and we were actually partners uh, in the guide service, uh, Chapel and Scott guide service for a long time, and um, Steve actually came down and worked uh, with Dar Colburn and myself uh, selling some real estate and had some really good years, and uh, we've yeah. just remained good friends, and it, it's been awesome to be able to uh, be outfitters in the same state and um, just have a, a great uh, friendship and professionalism and, and uh, you know, have a professional relationship as well as a personal relationship. Um, and Steve is, is, is a great guy. Anybody out there listening um, needs to really lean on Steve's expertise when it comes to elk. He's the best elk caller I know, designs his own elk calls, has his own elk TV show, um, but Steve, uh, something that you've really been focusing on, you know, in the last handful of years specifically uh, is this zero hunt fees program that you have with your guide service. You've obviously been guiding for a long, long time, but you've incorporated this zero hunt fees program to make it a lot more uh, economical for those people out there. Um, that are wanting to draw elk in, in Arizona. Can you talk a little bit about that program, and then we're going to dive into what units to apply for and some of the changes in the 2020 regulations. Yeah, Jay, absolutely. Yeah, you know, as time went on, I just saw that it was uh, becoming tougher and tougher for just your average person to to come on and afford a guided hunt in Arizona, or anywhere for that matter. And, you know, so... That, you know, that, that's basically how that, the idea came about was just the fact that, you know, I talked to a lot of non-residents on the phone about applying and the draw. Um, I know how hard it is for most people to come up with, you know, $5,000 plus to, to go on a guided hunt. Um, the Zero Hunt Fees program now makes that possible because basically someone's paying three forty nine a year be a member of zero hunt fees with no minimum so if they were to draw a tag on the first year they do not have to stay in the program to quote pay off their hunt unquote so um, it works fantastic that way um, you know by no means does it exclude others who would want to just come on a standard guide fees hunt because we have room for those people as well and we guide both people and, and treat it you know treat everybody the same as if it were our tag um, we did have seven members draw elk tags in 20, 2019. Uh, three of the guys were first year in the program. Two of the guys were first year in the Zero Hunt Feast program and had never applied before. So they were absolutely astounded that they drew a tag and then in disbelief that, yes, their hunt was $349. <laughs> and uh, they came and hunted with us. All seven of these guys killed trophy 6 by 6 or better bulls on the hunt. So we were 100% with those Zero Hunt Feast members. So out of the seven that drew on the Zero Hunt Feast program, three of them put in for the first year. They'd never applied in the state of Arizona. So they paid the 349 and they got a five to 8000 and I would call it priceless uh, because, you know, getting to hunt with your guide service is priceless. Um, but, you know, getting a value of, of $5,000 plus, they only paid $349, and they got a guided elk hunt. 
That's correct, yes. Two of them were first year applying in Arizona. Three of them, the three were first year members in the program. So you're correct. Yes, their elk hunts were $349. And they all came away with trophy six-point bulls and big smiles on their faces. And we did too. Um, I can't tell you how fulfilling it is to actually be with one of these hunters, which I was with two of them, and walk up on their bulls and just see the emotion overwhelm them, you know, that they, that they tagged a trophy bull, and then number two, that the program made it all possible for them to be able to come and share a hunt like that. You know, it's just pretty overwhelming for, for a lot of people to, you know, not only understand the draw and how it all works and pick hunts and all of that, but then if they do draw to come to Arizona and try to figure out a unit that they've never been to, uh, try to figure out the calling aspect of it, you know, where to glass from, and on and on and on. They don't even know where to start. And this program just makes it possible because it connects the dots from A to Z for them. I mean, basically all they have to do is draw the tag, and, and you know, we take care of the rest of it. That's awesome. Um, Steve, you, you did a DVD years ago on understanding uh, and a and I'm paraphrasing, but understanding and applying that knowledge to putting in and drawing an elk tag, and you went through the Arizona draw process, and I feel like you're one of the guys that I know that knows the Arizona elk uh, drawing process probably better than anyone. Um, can you give an explanation for those out there listening of how the Arizona draw system works? Yes. Um yeah, that DVD, I think, was called Arizona Application Strategies, if I remember correctly. But um, anyway, the, there's a couple of big things to know about the draw. I would say the first thing to know about it is that it's a five-choice system, but when you're applying for bull elk tags, you have to keep in mind that your first and second choices are what matter. Um, if, you're, if you're sticking to bull choices only, you just really need to think about the first and the second choice. And I think the biggest error that people make is they'll, they'll put the wrong order of hunts. So you want to use your first choice as your best choice and apply for the best hunt in your mind as first choice and then use your second choice for a hunt that will still meet your goals and expectations but that's going to have better odds than your first choice. That's the, that's the order you want to apply in. And I'm sure we'll cover it here in a minute, but as you build bonus points, you have to be careful about your second choice because you can draw that second choice in the bonus point round and not even get to the, to the random part of the draw to where you even give yourself the chance to get your first choice. Um, but I'll talk about that a little more in, in a minute because that gets pretty deep. The other thing to know about the draw is that it's a three-phase draw system. And again, really the first two phases of the draw are what's important when you're applying for bull elk tags because that's where you're going to draw a tag or not. Um, the first phase of the draw is going to be the 20% bonus point pass of the draw, and that's where they're issuing the first 20% of the tags for any given hunt um, based on bonus points. Bonus points only in that round. So what's going to happen there is that the, the residents are going to get 15% of that, they're going to get 15% of the 20%, and non-residents are limited to 5%, because in 2016, the Game and Fish made 
what I think was a, a good adjustment in the draw, and they saved that other 5% for the random part of the draw. So non-residents are limited to up to 10% of the tag. So again, they'll get the 5% in the bonus point round, and they save the other 5% for the random part of the draw. So once you get into the random part of the draw, again, that's where they can, the draw considers both your first and your second choice. And in that part of the draw, uh, a lot of people don't understand that, yes, bonus points do help your chances of drawing because it gives you more opportunities at a low random number, but it doesn't guarantee you drawing before someone with fewer bonus points because, again, it's, it's all based on what is the lowest random number that the computer generates for you um, in the process of, of, of generating random numbers. It's going to pick the lowest one and assign that one to you. So that's going to be how it determines who it issues tags to and who it doesn't. That's why someone with zero bonus points can draw a tag where, you know, in the random draw where somebody with 10 may not draw, if that makes sense. Because <laughs> it yeah. truly is a, a random, a, a random system. You know, but the benefits of that change that the Game and Fish made in 2016, whereas prior 10% of the tags went in the max point pool and there was yes. no chance for a random draw, meaning if you didn't have a lot of points, you had absolutely no mathematical chance or virtually no mathematical chance to draw a tag, whereas now 5% go, can go completely random, up to 5%, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, you're exactly right. For all of the better bull hunts, that's what was happening, is that the non-resident cap was being met in the bonus point round. So let's just take a hunt with 100 bull tags um, with a 10% non-resident cap. 10 of those 100 tags can be issued to non-residents. Well, what was happening prior to 2016 is that all 10 of those tags were being issued in the bonus point round, and then when we got into the second phase of the draw, the random draw, where someone without a bunch of points could conceivably draw a tag, well, there were no more non-resident tags left, so there just wasn't a chance for them to draw. And our Game and Fish, to their credit, recognized that they had set the draw up originally to be a hybrid draw with an element of fairness, being the bonus point round and an element of randomness, the random part of the draw. And when they saw that that just was not the case anymore for non-residents, to their credit, they reacted and adjusted the system. Now, I know it made people with a lot of bonus points unhappy, <laughs> but what everyone needs to realize is that at some point, all of us you know, are, have no bonus points or have very few bonus points. And the wonderful thing is that once you do draw a tag is, is that if you continue to apply, you're right back in the mix and you can draw a random tag again. Uh, matter of fact, I hunted with the very same non-resident in 2016 and then in 2018, he drew two phenomenal archery hunts in great units. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Let's dive into the 2020 regulations that have come out. And uh, for anybody that needs those, you can go to Arizona Game and Fish uh, website, uh, azgfd.com, I believe. And there'll be an icon that you can click there for the 2020 regulations. Yeah. Um, and let's dive into some of the changes, Steve, 
that you see that uh, you think are of note that we should be noting, and then we'll kind of dive in and do kind of a, uh, a unit, you know, what units do you like and what units, you know, we'll kind of go through them. Okay. Yeah, uh, so the first thing that I see is, you know, a few years back, as you, as, as you and I know and many of the listeners know, they started um, picking a unit where they flip-flop the archery and the early firearms hunt. In other words, they put the early firearms hunt in front of the archery hunt. So for that, this year they picked 5B, so in 5B North and 5B South, they put, uh, I believe it's a muzzleloader hunt. Yeah, muzzleloader hunt in 5B South that runs September 11th through September 17th with 25 tags. So that's going to be in front of the 5B South and, of course, the 5B North archery hunt, which is going to run September 18th through October 1st. <clears throat> the big thing about that is is those archery hunt dates starting on the 18th, that's going to be phenomenal. So those are the best dates in the state. Uh, last year they did that in 3C. Uh, so in my opinion, I think that muzzleloader hunt in 5B South is going to be a little tough. Um, first off, because the dates are a little bit early, and secondarily because 5B South is not a real glassable unit overall. So if the bulls aren't vocal, it's going to make that a tough hunt. Um, but then by contrast, I think by the time we get to the 17th and then roll into, you know, third week of September and then, into late September, that archery hunt should be really good in those two units. Um, then the next thing that I see is that they took a couple of uh, units like Unit 9 <clears throat> and they reduced the tags by 10. So in Unit 9 Early Rifle, this year there's only 25 tags. <clears throat> so what that means is there used to be 35. So now with 25, there's only going to be two non-resident tags available. So there's going to be a bonus point tag and a random tag available is how that's going to break down. Uh, and then I noticed in Unit 1 on the muzzleloader hunt that they reduced the tags from 40 to 35. That doesn't sound like a big deal, but for non-residents it kind of is because now there's only three non-resident tags. What Game and Fish does is if, there's 35 or 25 tags, 10% of that would be 3.5 or 2.5. And unfortunately, they round the 0.5 down <laughs> to the lower number. So when you've got 35 tags and it gets rounded down to three non-resident tags, what they do is they break that down into one bonus point tag instead of two and two random tags. Um, so last year when that hunt was at 40 tags, there would have been two bonus point tags and two random tags. So even though a reduction in five tags doesn't sound like a lot, it kind of affects the non-residents more so because of that, uh, you know, tag allotment there. With that being said, uh, if you've got a non-resident out there, I mean, is that a hunt that if they don't have many bonus points that they should consider jumping on because there's going to be two, you know, random tags uh, as opposed to two bonus point and only one random tag? Yeah, I totally agree, Jay. If they're a firearms hunter, um, you know, and they're wanting to hunt during the rut and they're wanting to hunt trophy bulls and just kind of have that once-in-a-lifetime type experience, those type of hunts make a phenomenal first choice on an application. So, so yes. Um, the other thing that I see that's kind of significant, which I, which I like, 
I, I don't want to sound wrong here, but I like when I see tag reductions because it just makes for better hunt quality. When you're out, actually out there experiencing these hunts, when there gets to be too many tags, it just degrades the, the hunt experience quality. So on the archery side of things, you know, we've got an archery hunt in all the other units besides the five Bs of September 11th through the 24th, uh, just a little bit early, um, but I think the last week should be pretty good this coming year, especially with the moon phase that we're going to have. Um, I see a tag reduction in Unit 1 of 50 tags, so they took it from 300 down to 250. That hunt feels crowded when you're on it, so I think that's a good move to take it down to 250. Um, I see that in 3A and 3C, which you and I know back in the old days, I think they had 50 tags on that hunt. Um, they had it at 135 last year. I see that it's at 100 this year. Um, again, I think that's going to make that a better hunt with fewer people in the field. Um, I see that they kept nine and t units 9 and 10 the same at 100 tags, which is great. Uh, there were a few years where they bumped unit 10 up and had 200 tags, and that was way too many. So I like that for several years they've reduced those tags and have them at 100. Um, for whatever reason, they still have unit 8 at 250. That, that seems pretty high to me. Um, you know, they must think that there's a big elk population in there. But again, that goes back to hunt experience quality. It's, it's just a little frustrating when you're out there and dealing with, you know, a lot of people out there. Um, it just degrades the quality of the hunt somewhat for everyone. Um, I also see on the late rifle side of things that they're reducing tags in some of the units. I see, uh, uh, unit 1, they reduced it from 375 down to 300 tags on the late hunt, which is good. Uh, in 3A, 3C, which is a tough late hunt, they reduced it from 300 tags down to 250, a good move. Uh, 7 West, they reduced 100 tags. Unit 9, they reduced 100 tags. And in Unit 27, they uh, reduced 60 uh, tags down to 400 total tags. So um, I think those are all moves in the right direction. Um, you know, especially in units like 27 where you've got a lot of burn and people are having high success and killing a lot of bulls, it's going to affect the trophy quality at some point. So I just like, I like what I see in these regs for sure. Steve, there's a fine line between having a bunch of tags and everybody getting opportunity, but the downside of that, you, you hit on it, you, you touched on it, is that you'll have a reduction in quality you'll have a reduction in older age class bulls they're going to be shooting more elk which means more uh, percentage wise they're going to shoot some bigger bulls some mature bulls and over time you're going to see a diminished quality i've kind of been feeling like over the last let's say 10 years that there has been a slide in quality statewide we talked about earlier in the introduction of the podcast how you know you have a great winter moisture year all of a sudden Arizona comes back and it feels like the old days. I still feel like there is a decline in quality that just is slowly going away and maybe people that aren't paying attention to it or maybe people that are new to it don't realize that. Um, I think the Game and Fish, our Game and Fish, does a pretty amazing job with the wildlife management across our state yeah. compared to other states. Yeah, but I still I feel like this tag reduction is, a, a, you know, kudos to our game and fish to recognizing that 
and, and, and it may not be that they recognize that the potential trophy quality is going down and, you know, they don't want to kill the golden goose, if you will. Um, but maybe they did. Maybe they are seeing that. Maybe they are taking some public input and trying to say, let's not, you know, maybe we went a little too far. I'm just curious if you thought that there was a, you know, instrumental plan to make trophy quality better or if it was more of a, you know, we've been harvesting a few more, we're getting reports in, let's go ahead and, and bump these numbers down a little bit and, and, you know, do good management practice. Yeah, I think our Game and Fish does a great job of walking the tightrope and managing for trophy quality and then, you know, good opportunity at the same time. Um, I mean, when you look at our state versus, say, Utah, where, you know, you're going to only have typically one or two non-resident tags per hunt. And on late hunts, they're only going to have, say, 20 total tags. And on our late hunts, we have, you know, say, 300 to 500, 700 tags in 6A. Um, again, I think you can't complain about the opportunity that's out there. And, you know, combined with the trophy quality. So, you know, I would echo what you say. I think our Game and Fish does do a very good job of managing for both sides of the equation, um, you know, and, and especially having some units that they manage on a, what, what's called an alternative management program where they're managing for a higher uh, bull-to-cow ratio, an older age class of bulls, more of a hunt quality experience with the, the tag allocations, um, I just think they do a good job of managing for both because it's impossible to please everyone, but I think they do a real good job of kind of meeting everybody in the middle. Um, and, and, and just I think our draw system is the best in the West as far as, you know, like I said earlier, having that element of fairness and element of randomness. Uh, I just don't think there's a better elk state and draw system out there than Arizona, and, and I think it's all the result of great management. Steve, um, I want to hit just on something you had mentioned about a moon cycle, just so the people that are listening can, when they're trying to plan what hunts they're going to apply for, I mean, obviously you can look it up. Uh, I usually just uh, Google on my phone moon cycle, September, October, November. Uh, but we've got a full moon on September 2nd. It's a uh, new moon. It's dark on the 17th. Uh, it's full again October 1st. It's dark on the 16th. Uh, it's full again November 1st, dark dark on the 16th, and full on the 30th. A couple things to point out there are, um, you know, the September with the full moon being on the 2nd and being the new moon on the 17th, you know, with that archery season starting on the 11th, you said, you know, the archery season, it's a little early. You were talking about those uh, early rifle hunts going early in 5B South that, you know, that that hunt might be a little bit early. They might not be bugling as, as good. Talk about, though, uh, briefly, in your opinion, on a September standpoint, when the moon is dark on the 17th, uh, how that could play into an advantage of, of, of an archer from having us 11th through the 24th date. Yeah, Jay, there's kind of two sides to this. And I'm always of the opinion when I'm hunting that I like to have less of a moon because it just seems like it equates to more daytime rutting and bugling activity. In the mornings, you get longer bugling, and then in the afternoon, evenings, you get a longer bugling period. 
you know, um, there, there's a lot of science out there that says that cows, you know, estrus cycle around that full moon uh, there in September around the fall equinox. Um, but gosh, just in all of my years of hunting and calling elk, I just really lean toward preferring to have more darkness at night because it doesn't allow those elk to carry on and rut and fight and run around all night long. And just like we would, they're wore out by the morning. And all they want to do is shut up at gray light and go bed down real fast and not give us much opportunity to call or pursue them. So, you know, I, again, I'm of the mindset that I really like the way this moon looks for the archery hunt. You know, not yeah. quite as favorable for the early firearms hunt, but I think the fact that, you know, you're hunting from the 25th of September to October 1st, that can't help but be a good hunt because of the fact that the dates are just there and, the, and there's going to be cows coming into estrus. It's going to be crazy rutting like it always is there in late September. So I, I like the moon phase for September this year, this coming year. I do too. I like the dates. I like it being new and dark on the 17th. I think you talk about the early rifle and muzzleloader seasons, uh, that 25th through October 1st. Yes, the moon will be full on the 1st, and when the season starts on the 25th, you know, it'll be a very bright moon. But, but by then, they'll have lit their hair on fire and chasing cows and going nuts. And so I think it'll, to me, I think that early firearm season, whether rifle or muzzleloader, will just be um, unbelievable bugling and, and chaos and, you know, going yeah. nuts, especially at night when you're driving around trying to locate elk. It's just <laughs> going to be a frenzy. Um, I think yeah. one of the things that you really need to watch, and we, it's always something you watch on those early firearm seasons, is the fact that, that you know, that October 1 full moon, they'll be going so hard that I honestly think it's going to be a, you know, they're going to break some points, which also plays into the guys that are looking at the November, you know, the late hunt dates of the 27th through the 3rd. And you say, well, how does the dates of the 27th through the 3rd play in? You're looking back in October. Well, I'm predicting that it's going to be a wet year. That's not a prediction. It already is a wet winter so far. If it continues, we're yep. going to have good antler growth. But then we're going to have, I think, a chaotic rut, especially uh, towards, you know, that October 1st time frame. So keep in mind those hunts after the rut and even during, you know, that 25th, that firearm seasons, you're going to start probably seeing broken points where this year it was such a dry monsoon, the way the moon phases were, it, they didn't seem to really rut like crazy, which meant there was a lot of really good late bulls, late elk bull, or late hunt, what am I trying to say? Firearm late yep. season bulls shot that were really good that weren't broke. I think you're going to see the opposite next year, but the benefit is the archery season could be, you know, phenomenal. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Jay, exactly. Unfortunately, bulls aren't able to regenerate antlers once they break them, so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, for late hunters for 2020, you might be dealing with a lot of that, you know, potentially shooting bulls that have some broken points and just letting a good taxidermist do their thing and, you know, repair those points for you. So, uh, but yeah, I would much rather have an active rut. And you're right with there being, you know, a bright moon during that early firearms hunt mixed with heavy rutting and 
you know, what's going to equate to heavy fighting at night. I think that's when most of the damage gets done. And so, yeah, broken antlers will be a, a real thing to deal with uh, there in 2020. Yeah, and also the late elk hunters uh, remember that the moon uh, is going to be full on November 30th. So the dates are the 27th through the 3rd. So those late elk hunters are going to be dealing with completely full moon on the late elk hunts. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there that they pay no attention to the moon and they actually say that it does not matter. I totally disagree. I'm, I'm totally yeah. in agreement with Steve in that, you know, regardless of what you're hunting, uh, especially elk, though, uh, on, a, on a full moon, they tend to not be as more active during the day, which does not give the hunters as much opportunity. It doesn't say you don't get opportunity. Uh, it just means that they tend to want to go lay down quicker and they want to stay down and not on their feet. We need them to be on their feet a little more in order to spot them, you know, in order to pick them out in those brushy hillsides. So that's just something to think about. Steve, yeah. in a second, I want to kind of dive into particular, uh, do a kind of a 2019 recap of your uh, chapel uh, guide service, um, you know, elk season, and then kind of dive into some of the particular units that you like. Before that, I want to uh, thank the sponsors of this podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com. Uh, I want to thank Cody Nelson, uh, my friend of 20-plus years, uh, he's the optics manager over there. If you guys have any optical needs at all, if, you, if you'd like to buy binoculars, spotting scopes, tripods, uh, range finders, rifle scopes, anything to do with uh, optics, give Cody a call at 702-847-8747. That's extension 2. You can also send him a direct uh, email at optics at gohunt.com. You can also text him or call him on his cell phone, 602-399-3699. Uh, that's his cell phone. I want to thank GoHunt for their sponsorship of my podcast. also want to remind you guys, uh, the GoHunt Insider is, in my opinion, the best resource out there for these uh, accurate draw odds. Uh, over the next week or so, they should have Arizona uh, up, so you should be able to uh, review the draw odds and be able to look into uh, the 2020 applications and kind of figure what happened last year to be able to make your plan for next year. If you're not a Go Hunt Insider member, go to gohunt.com forward slash jscott. Uh, when you do that, it's going to take you um, right into the insider. You can sign up. You're going to get a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop uh, gift card just for signing up. I want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Uh, if you want to find out more about Kuyu, you can go to kuiu.com. Kuyu is the gear that I wear on all my hunts. I do a couple times a week a question and answer session on my Instagram. I answer a lot of questions about Kuyu gear. If you have specific questions, uh, they have great customer service. You can call them on the phone. You can also send me a direct message or put a question on my um, Q&A. Uh, I also want to thank Phonescope.com. Uh, if you use um, any type of iPhone or any type of smartphone, you can take uh, photos and videos. That's what I use. If you go on my Instagram account, all the photos and videos are from Phonescope Adapter. Uh, use the JScott19 promo code. Now, that's soon going to switch to the JScott20 promo code as soon as it goes to 2020. 
But for now, the JScott19 promo code, that's going to get you a 10% discount. And then onxmaps.com, uh, Onyx Maps is an incredible resource for hunters out there. I use it every day on my phone. Uh, I love the fact that you can mark waypoints. You can import and export out of Google Earth. Uh, they've got a desktop version. They've got a phone version. Uh, they allow you to breadcrumb, so it's replaced the old GPS. Uh, use the JScott19. Again, if that's soon to be JScott20 promo code. It's going to save you 20% there at onyxmaps.com. Steve, um, let's dive into your 2019 season. You had already mentioned that you know seven hunters used the Zero Hunt Fees program uh, and, and the success, and, and three of those people being uh, new members drew immediately. Um, talk about the guide service in general and how the 19 season was for you guys. Yeah, Jay, it was, um, you know, really good. And I would say it was kind of the result of just sticking to it and staying positive and pushing through and having perseverance. Uh, because like I said, with the lack of moisture, there was lack of water and it just created very spotty bugling and rutting activity. I, I know for my guides and, and me personally, a lot of times on the morning hunt where you typically have the best bugling, it would come down to just dealing with one bull on a morning hunt, and you either you either got him into range or you didn't, and that was your whole morning hunt. And then the afternoons and evenings were even more challenging. Um, but we were still just blessed through it all, and uh, you know, able to come the able to overcome the challenge of that spotty bugling and rutting activity and our hunters made good on their opportunities and so you know everything worked out um yeah again i'm hoping that 2020 we have a little more widespread water and uh, more consistent bugling that always makes for a better archery and then early firearms hunt i think we're going to get that um so, yeah, we, we enjoyed real good success this past year. Um, you know, the, the big storm that we had on the late rifle hunt, uh, that created obvious challenges with being able to get around, get to places, uh, to glass and hunt. Uh, but, again, a lot of credit goes out to my guides and hunters for pushing through it and, uh, you know, coming through. And, uh, you know, we got some, some great bulls in the snow. Um, hoping that we have a little less of that in, in 2020. It seems more and more so that that late rifle hunt seems to get hit with big winter storms, uh, and that's just something that you deal with. Um, but again, uh, to, to everyone's credit, guides and hunters, uh, you know, everybody just put their game face on, and, and uh, when they had an opportunity, they made it count. So, you know, all in all, it was just a very uh, successful, uh, enjoyable year for us at Chapel Guide Service, and I'm um, just looking forward to a 2020 that's even better. Steve, um, did you have anybody in the 3C um, archery or uh, early rifle, and were you able to give some feedback on that early rifle hunt being in front of the archery season? I, I know you've kind of been, you know, with it being in 27 and 9 and 3C, and now this year in 5B South, um, any experience or any feedback from your guys on how that uh, 3C early rifle hunt being in front of the archery season played out for both hunts? 
Yeah, with 3C having so few early firearms tags, we did not have a, an early hunter in 3C, so we did not uh, really get to see what that hunt was like firsthand, although my guides told me that on the archery hunt that the bugling was a little more spotty than it usually is. Uh, so we had three hunters in there. Um, all three of them were actually Zero Hunt these members who drew 3A3C archery hunt, which is a phenomenal hunt. And all three of them came away with trophy bulls, trophy six-point bulls. Uh, one of the guys was no bonus points, never applied before. Um, unreal. Unreal. Yeah, unreal. Unreal. He's still just absolutely ecstatic and in disbelief, but he has a 360-plus rack to wrap his hands around to make it real for him. So <laughs> it got real, real quick. <laughs> yeah, it did. Um, the archery hunt did get better uh, than, than that early firearms hunt would have been, I'm, I'm sure of it. Um, so, again, I think based on that, I think that, uh, that early muzzleloader hunt in 5B South could be a real challenge. So I think a guy with a, a lot of points is going to want to think twice before they put in for a hunt like that. Uh, I would be more inclined if I was sitting on a lot of points and looking to put in for a firearms hunt, be it muzzleloader or rifle. Uh, to be, you know, looking at units where that date is the 25th of September to October 1st. Yeah. Steve, uh, early on you were talking about that uh, 5B South hunt going, and I might have misheard you. Uh, I thought you mentioned that there was also one in 5B North. I, I, I can't seem to find it here in the regs, or did I, did I mishear you, or did you misspeak? Yeah, you're correct, Jay. The, the only early firearms hunt is that muzzleloader hunt in 5B South. What they did, though, is they pushed the date back for the archery hunt in both 5B North and 5B South. I'm not totally sure why they did it for 5B North, uh, since there's not an early firearms hunt there, um, but, it, but that's a good thing. So, in my opinion, if someone's inclined to applying for those units, that's an even better reason to do so because of those better dates and the, and the start date being a week later and the hunt running a week later. Should yeah, be really I get both those units. I'm just looking at this now. I, I hadn't caught that, that 5B North was bumped back. I think yeah. being the 18th through the 1st with that dark, you know, we talked about the dark moon on the 16th. I mean, for me, you know, not particularly looking at in the point structure, you know, I have 16 points, so 5B North is not one of the units <laughs> that I'm eyeballing. But I, I got to think that that's just going to make the bugling that much better going back a week in 5B North. I think some of those people that are in, in the mid-tier point range, um, you know, that I think that could be kind of a sleeper as far as it's already a pretty darn good unit, but moving the season back a week with no firearm season before it, and it is interesting. I'm not sure why they did that, but um, that could be a hunt to watch. I totally agree, Jay. I think those dates are going to make it really good. So I think that unit it, it historically suffers from spotty bugling, but I think the fact that if you're going to have a week more of hunting in there beyond the other units, so I think you're going to get some really good bugling, especially during that last seven to ten days of that hunt, should be phenomenal. And I like that you mentioned that you've got 16 points because that brings up an important point that I touched on but didn't finish earlier on, and I should. You know, let's say in your situation or, or one of your listeners out there that's in a similar situation and they have quite a few bonus points like you do, 
let's say, for instance, for just example's sake, that you were to put Unit 9 Archery as your first choice on your application, and then you put Unit 5B North as your second choice because you like those dates. Well, I would say pack your bags, Jay. You're hunting 5B North this year. And the reason for that is because in the, in the bonus point phase of the draw, which is the first round of the draw, in that phase of the draw, it considers your first and your second choice. So you're likely not going to have enough bonus points to draw Unit 9, especially if you were a non-resident. You would not at 16 points have enough points to draw Unit 9 in the bonus point phase. But then the computer is going to immediately look at your second choice in that same phase of the draw, and it's going to consider your 16 points, and that is going to be enough points to draw 5B North. So bingo, you're going to draw that tag. So in effect, you have given yourself no chance to draw that first choice hunt of Unit 9 or whatever it happens to be. If you put 23 North or whatever it happened to be, you would not give yourself a chance to draw that tag because your bonus points would give you that second choice tag, if that makes sense. And I, I want to make sure that I explain that well for the listeners. Yeah, and I think to take it a step further, I mean, every single year for the last handful of years, I get a call after the, the um, when the credit cards have gotten hit and they say, I've drawn a tag, but I don't know what it is. And I say, well, yeah. explain me what you put in. And they said, oh, man, you know, I swung for the fence with the Unit 10 early rifle tag. You know, I think that's the one I got, but I put a Unit 10 archery tag as my second choice. And they tell me yeah. their point numbers, and I say, you drew a Unit 10 archery tag. Well, how do you know? I say, <laughs> because you're in the max point pool for your second choice, so you automatically drew it. Your first choice, you shouldn't even have listed it because it's completely invalid. Well, right. that's not true. How, Jay, how do you know that? That, that? that doesn't seem right. I put it as my first choice. Yeah. So we need to really drive home because, Steve, I know you get several calls every year as the same and someone bewildered that they can't believe that the person they're talking to knows they already drew their second choice. Well, how yeah. do you know? You can't know, Jay. And I said, listen, if you have 18 points or you have 16 points or you have 15 points or 13 or whatever it may be, and it's a guaranteed on your second choice, the computer doesn't even look at your first choice. It yeah. automatically throws you the bone in your second choice. Yeah, because you never get to the random part of the draw because you've already drawn the tag in the bonus point round. That, that is a great point. And that's why apps like the Go Hunt app are so valuable because you can go on there and analyze the data and see how many bonus points it takes to draw these various units. And I'm probably the most guilty of using that term swing for the fence on the first choice. <laughs> I think I talked about that on my application video years ago. Um, and so I think people don't want to just blindly do that, especially as you build bonus points. You know, when you get in there and you start having 10 or more bonus points and you're applying for archery hunts especially, you've really got to watch what your second choice is because you could be in that scenario that we're talking about right now. And again, that goes back to, you know, educating yourself and, and you know, using, using data, you know, using things like Go Hunt to analyze that 
to where you're not making that mistake and, and drawing a hunt that maybe you don't really want to draw, but just in the heat of the moment and the excitement of applying, <laughs> you go ahead and pull the trigger and put it as a second choice. Yeah. Steve, I want to kind of go through some of the units and have you just kind of rapid fire, you know, giving your, um, you know, opinion on trophy quality, what to expect, anything that jumps out of you, you know, high country hunt, low desert hunt, whatever. And, and I, I may not go through all of them, but I'm going to hit uh, on some of them. But I also want to point out that with the zero hunt fees and with Chapel Guide Service, you individually help people apply and help them choose the right hunt, correct? That's exactly right. And that's a good point, Jay, because I know a lot of people or most people don't have time necessarily to go on and analyze data or just don't want to do that. And so, you know, I'm obviously here for that, and I'm, I'm happy to help people with selecting hunts that are going to meet their goals and expectations, and then also managing, obviously, their bonus points and making wise decisions and help, helping them come to wise hunt choices based on all of that. So, yes, I do help people on an individual basis, and it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all uh, type scenario. And if, if they're zero hunt fees members, I mean, you help them, it's no extra fee. If they're a member for three forty nine a year, that's, that's part of being a member, correct? Absolutely. I think that's one of the most important parts of being a member is they get that hunt choice consultation every year so that they're making wise choices on their application so that when they do draw a tag, it's a hunt that's going to fit what they're looking for. And then, of course, the best part of the membership is, is that it covers their guided hunt. Um, it's amazing how many guys say, yeah, I understand that, but how much do I owe when I actually draw a tag? You know, what's the guided part? <laughs> yeah. they, they always think there's a catch. And I say, there's no catch. The only catch is that you have to draw a tag. Um, right. If it were an over-the-counter state, I'd be an absolute fool to offer the program because everybody would get a 349 hunt and I would go broke and I wouldn't be able to pay guides and all of that. But um, So, you know, the, the only thing in, in the membership is that, yes, you have to draw a tag, but now that half of the non-resident tags are random, guys have to keep that in mind. A full one-half of the non-resident tags are random, Everyone has a chance to draw any tag on any given year, and that's what makes this program so viable and valuable. Steve, I want to go through a few of these units, and this is going to be more of a rapid-fire kind of you know, quick. If there's some units that you don't operate in or you don't have a lot of knowledge, it's free to just say uh, pass or skip, and we're just going to kind of blow through some of these. Uh, yeah. This for the listener, because um, I do have a few listener questions here that I do want to get to, so I don't want to spend a ton of time. This is more just kind of a shotgun, kind of the first couple things that come to your mind, and then we'll move on. Um, okay. and, and I want to talk, kind of primarily talk archery elk. Um, okay. You know, and if, if there's some specific, you know, benefit to late hunting or something you want to point out, feel free, but let's kind of talk in a bugling kind of time frame, uh, season, you know, structure, uh, yeah. and, and, you know, just kind of shotgun through one, two B, two C. Yeah, that's a, a classic elk unit with everything from Aspen high country to Ponderosa pine to low cedar country. Um, what did have too many tags? I like the direction it's going down to 250. 
Uh, typically good bugling on the hunt. Um, I still think it's going to feel a little crowded, but I would say that it's a, you know, still in that upper four to five units when you're considering archery hunting. 3A, 3C. Yeah, a, a great archery hunt historically, um, still a unit that I love. Uh, you know, borders the White Mountain Apache Reservation, so there's big bulls, big bull genetics. Um, you know, generally has good bugling on the hunt, so, so high success rates on the archery hunt. Uh, definitely the opportunity there, you know, for 340 and better bulls with the chance at a real special bull uh, th if things go right. So, yeah, definitely, in my opinion, it's one of the top three, three to four units for sure in the state. 3B. 3B, that's one of those kind of off-the-grid units. Um, it's a unit that, you know, doesn't, it gets overshadowed by Unit 1 and Unit 3C, um, but I still think a good unit, you need them to bugle well to have a good hunt in there because overall it's not real glassable. Um, I don't think it's a hunt for just anyone. Um, I think it, it, it better fits someone who has local knowledge or, you know, who hires a guide. Um, so I would rank it kind of as a maybe mid, lower mid-tier type unit. 4A. 4A, we don't guide in 4A a lot for whatever reason. Um, it does have the reputation of having pretty good bugling in there, uh, a lot of elk in the unit. Um, you know, you've got everything from pine country uh, up on the rim, and it, it floats out north uh, into the flats in the pinyon, pinyon juniper country. Um, yeah, it's just a unit that's a little bit off the grid for us. For whatever reason, we don't get a lot of demand for it. 4B. Um, again, we don't guide in that one a lot, thankfully, because it gets overshadowed by Unit 1 and Unit 3C, and for good reason. Uh, it kind of has the wrap of being a very uh, spotty bugling and rutting activity. For the most part, uh, you know, 280 to 310 type bulls. Occasionally, there's a nice bull taken out of there. Uh, but I would say definitely not a unit that you want to burn a lot of points on. And if you're a trophy hunter, it uh, would be one you'd want to stay away from. 5A? 5A. Um, yeah, again, a unit that doesn't get a lot of publicity. Um, I do have a guide who's very strong in that unit, his favorite unit. Uh, he does very well in there. Again, I think that's a unit that you just don't want to just randomly apply for unless you've got some local knowledge or, you know, have some help from someone who knows the unit. Uh, because just like many, many of these units, um, you can have spotty bugling and rutting activity and the hunt can be frustrating. 5B North? Yeah, again, another unit that can have spotty bugling and rutting activity, but I like the fact that the later dates this year could make that a phenomenal hunt. So if that's on someone's radar at all, that uh, that later date is something strong to consider. Um, I do think that the trophy quality overall is better in 5B North than it is in 5B South. 5B South has more elk and typically a little more active rut, um, but 5B North has the nod in trophy quality and there's places you can glass in 5B North. Okay, we'll skip 5B South since you talked about 6A. Uh, 6A is a classic opportunity archery hunt. Uh, lots of tags, lots of people. 
um, you know, that's a hunt where you're going to have to really go deep and you know, get off the beaten path to find undisturbed elk. Uh, you know, definitely not a hunt for everyone. Uh, you know, again, because of the fact that there's a lot of tags, it's, it's going to pressure the elk and, and make for, you know, less bugling. That's the first thing elk do when they get pressured is they become less vocal and they become more nocturnal. So, um, you know, that's a hunt for someone that's looking to just kill a six-point bull. You know, most of the bulls you're going to encounter are going to be, again, 280 to 310 with a chance for a special bull if you get back uh, rough and deep. Um, but think twice before applying for that hunt. 6B. Yeah, I actually had that tag back, I think it was in 1999. Um, did encounter some pretty nice bulls that year and then the year after when I guided a hunter in there. Um, it's a fairly small unit. I believe, I haven't, I think it's got about 155 tags, maybe less than that. But even at that, it can kind of feel crowded because the unit is not real big and it doesn't have a ton of elk habitat when you consider the size of the unit. Um, you know, I say for a person who doesn't have a lot of bonus points, isn't a strict trophy hunter, would be happy with a 300 to 320 bull with a chance for something special. You know, that might be a unit they, they might consider as a second choice. Seven East. Oh, seven east. <laughs> that's, a, that's a unit that can be good and, and can be really poor. Um, that unit is one that has definitely declined over the last decade. You know, it does border unit nine, um, but even with that, it doesn't uh, put that unit on the level of, of unit nine or, you know, even seven west or eight for that matter. Um, you know, again, a hunt that's going to be plan for it, real spotty bugling, real spotty rutting activity. That's the kind of hunt that you can go four and five days in a row with having virtually no bugling to go on. Um, so if, if you're going to apply for that hunt, you're going to want to have the whole 14 days uh, to hunt it. Uh, there are portions of the unit that are, that are glassable, so you could potentially, if you're a solid glasser, find a nice bull to hunt. Um, but again, just be ready for that, uh, you know, I say it over and over, spotty bugling and rutting activity. Seven West? Yeah, Seven West, again, borders Unit 9. I believe of the Sevens, it's a better unit than Seven East. I think overall it's got better big bull potential, um, although, again, it can suffer for, from off and on bugling. Um, it is a glassable unit. Uh, much of the unit is in the... Uh, Pinion Juniper Country, and you've got those volcanic mountains out there, so a guy can glass that. Um, I think if someone had the whole 14 days and can endure the spotty bugling and rutting activity, there is a potential for sure for a 340-plus bull uh, with the possibility of a really big bull for the right hunter. Yeah. Unit 8? Yeah, Unit 8 is kind of in that same boat as Seven West, although I think to, with 250 archery tags, that's, in my opinion, about 175 to 100 too many for that hunt, so that's going to feel a little crowded. Um, you know, I go back to when I was with a good friend on that hunt years ago, and uh, you and Dar and Gene were in Unit 10, and they were just ripping, and I was talking to you guys, and I was so frustrated because I was stuck in Unit 8, and I was hunting all over the place, Jay, and the bugling was just so spotty. I mean, mostly off, and you're telling me, oh, they've been ripping the whole time. 
and I come over, I think it's on day 11 or day 12 after we finish the hunt in, day, in Unit 8, and I've said it before, but I heard more bugling in that first hour of light with you and Gene, your wife, that morning. And I heard, I'm not exaggerating, the whole time in Unit 8. So you've got to really consider that. Um, I mean, if conditions are right, you know, when there's cows in heat, I always say that the cows are what dictates the rut. If they're in heat, things go crazy. But I, sti I still feel like these units like 9 and 10 and 1 and 3C and 23, that's where you're going to have the better consistent bugling. So unit 8 is, a, you know, a strong mid-tier unit in my opinion. Unit 9. Uh, yeah, Unit 9, legendary, and for good reason. Um, you know, like we talked about prior to last year, it had been slipping a little bit. You know, always a handful of special bulls will come out of that unit, and I know that's what most of us see, you know, when we're looking at the magazines or on Instagram. And so, you know, you kind of get the idea that everybody who has that tag is going to kill a 380 bull. Um, that's not the case, and that will set you up for disappointment. I still feel like that's a unit where you can, you know, expect to reasonably tag a 340-plus bull uh, with a chance at a special bull. Um, but on the right years, the bugling can be very good. Um, I love it because the whole unit is huntable. Um, you can hunt everything from ponderosa pine to cedar pinion to, to brakes. Um, it's a great caller's unit. Again, you need them to bugle to have a great hunt. Um, some people don't like it because of the waterhole situation and competitiveness of, at water, um, but if you're a caller, it's an awesome caller's unit. I also like it, Jay, because overall the road systems are good, and I think that tends to spread people out instead of concentrating people, and I like the fact that you can easily be hunting 20 miles from one day to the next, uh, and I think that's a positive thing about that unit. I, I love it. Unit 10. Yeah, Unit 10, again, a legendary unit for big bulls, big bull genetics bordering the wallop high. Um, that's a unit that's, that's for a lot of hunters, but not for everyone. Um, it's typically a remote unit with rough roads, so, you know, you're going to need to plan to have a lot of extra fuel, a lot of extra spare tires because the roads are rough on your vehicle, rough on your tires. You're not able to use an ATV or UTV on the, uh, on the Boquillas Ranch unless you're a champ hunter, a mobility-impaired hunter. You can, but otherwise, on the archery hunt or any other hunt, you can't use ATVs or UTVs out there. So guys need, need to keep that in mind. On the right year, the rutting can be chaotic. Um, I think it's a pure caller's unit. Uh, the great thing about it is it's also glassable. So uh, people are able to glass and find a great bull on that hunt. Um, it doesn't have the overall success rates that Unit 9 has, and I think that goes back to the fact that you can't sit water on the Boquillas Ranch, which encompasses half of the unit. And I think that's why it's got the lower success rates. But um, I think for 2020, if we continue to get this moisture, that there could be phenomenal antler growth and, and a good strong rut, and Unit 10 could be really good. 11M. Oh, that's a unit we've actually never guided. Um, M stands for Metro. Um, a hunter who draws that is going to need to have some real local knowledge, so it's not a hunt that you just want to blindly apply for because these elk can be, you know, mixed in and out of private property and people's yards and house sites are close to it. Um, so it can be a real frustrating hunt in, in that regard. 
but that's just a unit, in my opinion, that you don't want to apply for unless you've got some real local knowledge. 19A. 19A is a unit that uh, just don't really have any history, Jay, on, so that one's just kind of off the radar for me. Yeah. 21. 21, 21. another one. Yeah, with a few tags that it has, we just don't get uh, demand for that hunt. Um, I do have a guy that lives in the Camp Verde area, so you know he would know that unit very well if someone were to draw it. But again, it's not a unit where you can expect to have a lot of elk. It's not you know a classic archery elk hunt with a lot of elk and a lot of bugling. Um, it would be more of a hunt in more rugged country. So yeah, not a hunt for your average person for sure. Again, one you would want to have local knowledge to go on. 22. 22, um, yeah, it doesn't have a lot of tags, which can make for a good hunt with some good bugling. I still remember uh, that evening in uh, 1995 where <laughs> we went into 22 and called, and it was absolutely fun and phenomenal. Um, you know, don't know that it's still that way as far as bugling goes. Um, something to know about 22 is the terrain is can be pretty rough. Um, you know, it's it's not going to be, you know, like Unit 9 or, you know, 10 or 1 where you've got a lot of fairly flat to moderate country uh, to, to ramble around in and chase bugling. Um, you know, it's more rugged and brushy and lots of steep stuff. So, again, not for your average hunter, but could be a good bugling hunt, again, for someone wanting, you know, a 280 to 310 type bull for the most part. 23 north and south, and Steve, when you hit on these, we didn't touch on the 15 tag uh, allocation and what that means for the non-resident hunter in the max point pool and the random draw. Can you touch on those when you talk about 23 north and south? Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. I'll talk about that first. Um, so with that 23 north having 15 tags and 10% of the tags going to non, potentially going to non-residents, that would be 1.5 tags, so it's rounded down to one. And the fact that there's just one potential available tag for non-residents, it's going to be a random tag. So if you're a guy who's sitting on, say, 22, 23 points, and you want to apply for that for archery, that would be totally fine to go for, but you're not guaranteed the tag because, again, there's just one available non-resident tag. Um, I do see that non-residents do typically draw that one tag for that hunt and then also the early rifle hunt in 23 North. Uh, same on the archery for 23 South. There's a one potential random non-resident tag. Uh, and then for the early rifle hunt in 23 North, there's 15 tags. So again, one potential random tag. And there's only five tags for the 23 South early rifle hunt. So again, very few tags and only one potential random tag for a non-resident. So the guy sitting on max points is not guaranteed that tag. Um, now for the fun part of those units. Uh, 23 North especially is that, you know, you and I have talked about the Jurassic Park elk hunt of Arizona. Um, you can pretty much guarantee year in and year out if you draw that tag, you're going to have a one-of-a-kind bugling their guts out kind of experience and it shows in the success rates if you look at 23 north and 23 south you're going to see a lot of times success rates over 80 percent on an archery hunt which is unheard of 
And I think it equates to a couple of things, a high bull to cow ratio and a lot of bugling. So, you know, when you can hear them, it makes archery hunting a lot easier and a lot more fun. Um, so, you know, for that person looking for, you know, a great bull, definitely the potential of 350 and better with a chance for a really special bull because they do border the White Mountain Reservation. Uh, great genetics, and there's bulls coming back and forth across the line to rut. Um, it, it, it can just be chaotic and just a phenomenal experience. 27. 27 um, gets a little bit overshadowed again by one and a 3C. Um, a great unit, but I think it's not for everyone. And again, it's because of the physicality of the hunt. Um, much of 27 is remote and steep. Um, so for a person who's going to put in for that hunt, they need to be aware uh, that it's going to have a lot of up and down involved, uh, you know, higher elevations. Much of the unit is at 9,000 plus feet. Um, you know, so it's not the kind of unit where you can get, just go ramble and chase five bulls in the morning. Um, you know, you're going to have to do a lot of climbing and hiking to, you know, maybe get on one bull. So know that about it. But for a person who likes uh, to get away from people, uh, there's wilderness areas in the unit, um, opportunity to get away and, you know, potentially hunt a real special bull. Um, but again, be, you know, it's for, in my opinion, for younger guys are, are guys who are very fit and can handle uh, the physical nature of that hunt. Steve, do you have time? We're going to dive in. We've got some questions from some Instagram followers and uh, dive, dive through a couple of these questions here. Absolutely, Jay. I'm just sitting here watching it snow. <laughs> <laughs> it's raining here as, as we speak, uh, watching rain come off the eve of the house. Um, seven, okay, this comes, let's see, seven non-residence points. Stick it out for early archery. Let's see, stick it out for early archery or consider late archery. Never shot a mature bull. Oh, gosh. I'm going to say... I'm not going to make that decision for him. That's a great question, but I'm going to give him some food for thought. And I think it all goes to what his idea is of an elk hunt. And if he wants to be out there and have that interaction with bulls that are bugling and have the ability to call and have that fun interaction of that chess match. And I know for me personally, and I'm not going to push that on your listener, but for me personally, that's what makes elk hunting so special and separates them from any other animal in the creation is that vocal aspect. So when I elk hunt, that's what I'm looking for and what makes it special to me. Now, if he's more about just getting out there and going on a hunt and giving himself a better chance of, of going on a hunt, then, you know, by all means, he might consider a late archery hunt. Um, I don't study the points real closely that it takes to draw particular units, so he will want to be very careful about what he puts, especially if he lists it as a second choice because he could get in that scenario where he's guaranteed to draw that second choice if he puts it as his you know, second pick for an archery hunt. So be very mindful of that. Um, also know, um, you know that it's a very tough, spot and stock and water sitting hunt. And, and by tough spot and stock, I mean you typically have uh, bulls who are either alone or bachelored up. They're no longer rutting. They're a lot more wary than they were during the rut. 
makes it very difficult to get inside an archery range in, unless you're a really patient and, you know, committed kind of a stalker like, you know, the guy we know, Kevin Passmore, does very well on these type of hunts. Um, but it's got it to be the right kind of person to endure that type of hunt. Yeah, for sure. I'm adding my two cents. I mean, I get this question a lot. And, and one, you make a huge point of make sure that you, you know, with seven points, you don't put in for, you know, one of these, you know, 6A, 7, 8, 9, 10, 23, that you're an automatic lock to draw because yeah. you will not even be considered on your first choice and you might as well have just put your second as your first because they didn't even look at your first. That's yeah, number absolutely. one. And number two, people need to understand that it's late archery elk, so most of the time you will not hear any bugling, you will not hear cows calling. You know, take that element out of the hunt and it becomes, uh, if it's dry, you can sit water and have some success. If, yes. it's, if it's not dry, you're going to have to spot and stalk. And as we know, after the rut, those elk get in those really thick, um, really nasty spots, and it's very, very challenging hunt. So, you know, yes. it is the late archery hunts are not for everybody, and I would argue that they're only, uh, you know, to be efficient, you have to be pretty much an archery stud to get it done or be willing to sit days on end at one spot until you get your opportunity. Uh, the, totally next question, the next question basically ties right into this. It says, thought on late archery bull hunts, good for a second choice, how to hunt them. Well, we kind of talked about you either going to spot and stalk or you're going to sit. It's going to be a challenge. If you just want to kill a bull, they can be a phenomenal hunt to put in and probably draw every couple of years. If you're looking for the bugling experience, like Steve said, this is not your hunt. Um, yes. And I think question also, here, go ahead. I just alluded to, on these hunts, when there's, say, 25 to 50 tags, the guys who succeed are typically going to be the real hardcore, real experienced hunters, um, whereas many of the people will just have a very frustrating lack of action lack of elk, you know, hard to even see or find elk, it can be a very disheartening experience, and then you've burnt your bonus points. And so I would say really, really think twice before you pull the trigger on that type of hunt, unless you feel like, you know, you're a very experienced, have a lot of time, a, a real glasser, and a real patient stalker. Um, that, that's, that, that hunt is going to suit that type of hunter. Got a question here. Best late hunt units uh, don't have any points, so late hunts have better odds to get drawn. You know, Steve, I'll say if you're looking at late elk hunts, what you need to look for is what units can I glass in? What yes. units can I see the best in? That, now, you can kill an elk in any late elk hunt in the state, but from a standpoint of trying to be the most efficient, trying to have the most fun, Pick the units like a 23 uh, that you've got canyons and points that you can glass across. Pick units like uh, unit 27, unit 1, where you've got burn areas where you can get on points and glass across. You know, unit 1 and 27 used to be one that would be a very tough late hunt, but then they've got the fire where now you can see. Uh, you've got a unit 10, which has a lot of different glassing knobs where you can get up on high knobs and glass and get good uh, optical advantage. 
whereas you've got a unit like Unit 9, the glassing isn't quite as good. So I would say 10 would yeah. be a better late hunt unit than Unit 9. Then you take a unit like a 5B South, like you mentioned, Steve, where the, the glassing is just not very good. It's pretty darn thick. That's going to yep. be tough. So, I mean, I think, and Steve, you add anything you, you think here, but when you're looking at late elk hunts, pick the ones that you can have an optical advantage, have some canyon country that you can be on one side looking across and spot a bull and be able to shoot at it. Absolutely, because it's all about glassing, and if the unit's not laid out well topography-wise, it's going to be a frustrating hunt. It's going to be hard to locate elk. These bulls aren't going to be out near the roads where you can just drive and see them. You know, by and large, that's not going to be the case. So you've got to have topography to be able to find them. And like you say, units with, with canyon country and burns. You know, another one that I might uh, add in there would be, you know, unit 8. I don't think it's at the level of obviously 23 or 27 or 1 or uh, maybe even 10. But unit 8 does have a lot of topography that lends itself to glassing. Um, but again, expect a tough hunt in, in rough country. Long-range shooting is the norm. You know, I'll talk to people, uh, and nothing against them, because where they live, they don't need to have, you know, a 500-plus-yard gun. But if you draw one of these hunts, uh, you know, the rule of thumb is that it's going to be, you know, four and 500-plus-yard shooting, so you're going to need to have the right equipment, the right amount of practice, uh, and just be, you know, ready for that type of hunt, because there's nothing worse than, you know, not having the right equipment or having it and not having put in the practice and, and taking shots across canyons when you're just, you know, not not skilled enough to do that. Um, but, yeah, you know, a unit like Unit 9 can be my favorite rut unit, but it can be one of the worst as far as a late hunt. Just because a unit has big bull genetics doesn't mean you're going to be able to find those bulls when they're in the thick stuff or, or they're on the park or the reservation. Uh, so keep that in mind. And by and large, if you see a unit is harder to draw on a late season, there's a reason for that, and that's because it's typically a better unit for late hunting. Got a question here. Good units for elk to get away from people if you're willing to hike. And I think this is a, I get this question a lot. I get it mainly from non-residents, and there's this notion, this preconceived notion out there that, you know, Arizona's got some units that, oh, well, I can hike so I can get away and I'm going to get into bulls that other people aren't. And I would say that that definitely is true in states like, you know, Colorado and Wyoming and Montana and, you know, some of these, some of these places where they've got some very, very remote and rugged country. I will say that, yes, there are a few units. Unit 27 is one that kind of yeah. comes to mind. Unit 22... Yeah. Even though the quality in 22 has gone downhill, there is some wilderness that you can, yes, you can get away. But in general, this doesn't apply as much to Arizona because there's literally roads and trails everywhere. So just yes. in the places where you think that, oh, I can get there, well, you, there's people everywhere. You know, Unit 21 maybe come, comes to mind that there's some, you know, some rugged stuff that you might be able to get into. But... I get this question a lot from non-residents that they just feel like, well, I'm going to put in for this unit because I see there's areas that I can just go in the middle of nowhere and, and get into elk. And that would be my other thing is most of the time there's not like these just pockets of elk that are in, you know, areas. 
you can get to most elk by a hour walk in the state of Arizona, where that is not true in Colorado. Some areas take five, six, seven, ten hours to get to. That's just yeah. not that feasible in Arizona. So don't think that you're going to come down here and find the holy grail of units by the ability to walk. Although walking is phenomenal, it doesn't give you as big of an advantage as it would, say, in the high country of Colorado where you're getting away from 99% of the people. Steve? Yeah, I totally agree with that. Being a good walker is going to serve you well in a unit that's got good bugling and good rutting activity and, and even a lot of elk because elk by nature are a very physical animal and you'd be amazed even in flat country you know how elk can move you know three four five miles from where they water and feed at night to where they bed and they can do it in a hurry so it's going to leave you know a person who's not real fit just in the bleachers so to speak um, I would also say that you know if you think you're going to walk away from people, a lot of times you're going to walk away from elk because in Arizona, unlike a lot of states, you know, you know, a unit like one, a unit like 27 is a little bit of the exception to this, but in most of these units, the water sources are man-made water sources. So in order to make and maintain these water sources, you have to have roads or a trail that goes to them, and elk are very, uh, you know, water dependent, especially during the rut. So if you get yourself walked way back in and you get yourself way, hence you get yourself way away from any of these water sources, you're in, in essence getting yourself way, way away from the elk. So, um, you know, that's, that's something to keep in mind and something that you touched on. This, our state is not set up like Colorado or maybe Idaho or places like that where you're just going to be able to use your, your physicality to get into good elk hunting. Got a question here. With current Arizona elk management, what will elk hunting in Arizona look like in 10 years, Steve? Yeah, I would like to think that, um, you know, if we keep things as they are or very close to as they are, which I would assume that they're going to be because we've been, you know, much on the same path over the last two or three decades, um, I think the future of elk hunting in Arizona is bright. Um, I really don't see that changing. I think the only factor that the game and fish for us as hunters can't control is the climate. Um, so we've got to hope and pray for good moisture uh, because, you know, as we were talking about quite a bit on this podcast, that dictates antler growth, also bugling and rutting activity because the health of the elk uh, is the biggest factor in good rutting. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I feel like we're in for a bright future in Arizona elk hunting. I agree, especially with seeing this year that they did listen to public opinion and the wildlife managers probably saw that they needed to reduce some tags. If they wouldn't have done the tag reduction this year, you know, I would be more of a skeptic than I am. I think historically our game and fish department does a great job managing you know, the public resource and, and, you know, their hats off. They, you know, they do get catch a lot of criticism, but I think, you know, here's a direct case of, you know, dropping some tag allocations, and I think it's going to speak well for quality and maintaining that quality. So, you know, I am optimistic about Arizona's outlook in 10 years. Um, yes. I do think overall hunters are becoming better. 
Um, I do see just a general trend in more opportunity and less quality. Um, so, you know, I think, I think our state maybe not, won't decline maybe as much as some of other states out there. Um, I think, you know, our political climate in Arizona is a little bit uh, better in the fact that a little bit more pro-wildlife management, letting, you know, wildlife yes. managers do their job, whereas there's some other yes. states that, you know, we've got a lot of different things going on in other states right now that could really affect, uh, you know, wildlife management. Um, but I'm, Definitely. as well, I'm optimistic as you, Steve, and, uh, you know, my hat's off. Any, any Game and Fish guys out there listening, I mean, I know you've got a very tough job to do, and I was real happy to see um, dropping some of these tags. I think it will help these hunts. And, um, Steve, I've been bending your ear uh, this morning, and I appreciate your time. I want to give you a chance to... Um, if you have any final thoughts, and I also want, want you to make sure people know how they, they can reach out to you, and I'm going to link it up in the show notes. Uh, before I do that, I do have to mention I'm catching wind that there's a new elk call going to be maybe released uh, in the spring. Um, what's up your sleeve, big boy? Oh, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Jake, because I totally forgot about that. I got so, you know involved in talking about the draw and the hunts and everything. Yeah, so we're uh, coming out with a new open read call. Uh, the weir is uh, Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls and, and me. Uh, it's going to be called the Heartbreaker. I believe it will be out in uh, the spring. I did carry it, the prototype of it, this past fall. Um, really love how it sounds. It, it actually has, it's got an aluminum barrel, and it has a soft touch finish on it so it has a real nice kind of a grippy feel a lot of these open read calls um, kind of have a slippery feel to them and I just really like how this soft touch feel uh, feels in your hand and I especially love the tonal quality um, it, it's got similar tone obviously you know how picky I am about tone Jay <laughs> visiting with me in the past um, I'm super picky about elk tone and what I like in a call and an open read call, and this call does have that full three-dimensional um, nasal quality to it that the bulls really respond to. And again, I say if someone out there has a hard time with mouth reads or just doesn't have the time to master a mouth read, um, if you pick up a, a good open read call, and it is very important how they're designed if you pick up the right one and spend some time with it and get to where you can blow those nice, uh, you know, mellow three-dimensional nasal cow calls, you're just going to absolutely kill it out there. Awesome. Well, that'll be exciting. I'm looking forward to that. I know, you know, the trophy wife for the last handful of years has been my number one go-to external, and the matriarch's <laughs> been my second, um, yes. you know, and I don't know what it is about the trophy wife that I like just a smidge better than the matriarch, but I carry them both. I tend to lean on the trophy wife a little more. I do mix it up and use the matriarch. Um, yes. And, I mean, Steve, as you know, I'll use any elk call that I think is the best. And, you know, right now uh, those two calls have been my favorite for a long time. So I'm excited to check out this new one. It'll be cool. Um, also want to give you a chance to let people know where they can find you, reach out more, talk to you about zero hunt fees, uh, sign up for your program. And um, so why don't you do that, and I'll link it up in the show notes. 
Yeah, Jay, thank you for that opportunity. Yeah, so we just had our website updated and totally overhauled, and I'm really happy with it. So I would encourage people to take a look at it. I think they'll enjoy it. Um, so you can get there three ways. Actually, you can uh, log on to chapelguideservice.com, uh, two P's and two L's in chapel. Uh, you can get there also by uh, typing in zerohuntfees.com or they can type in elkcamptv.com and get to my website, any one of those three ways. Uh, feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions about the draw or your application choices or a hunt for 2020. I'm happy to visit with people individually. Um, on Instagram, if people want to follow us on Instagram, uh, we're at elkcamptv. And then on Facebook, it is uh, Chapel Guide Service and Elk Camp TV on Facebook. Um, and we do stay pretty active on social media. Um, <laughs> I'm not a social media kind of guy, as you know, Jay, but uh, uh, I know it's something that uh, you know is, is modern, and everybody's on there. So uh, you know, happy to happy to be on there, and, and like to keep it to the hunting and elk. So if somebody's an elk lover, I think they would enjoy our social media. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for sharing with us, and thanks for your time. Uh, thanks for your friendship over the last bunch of years, and I uh, always enjoy talking to you. Uh, also, are you going to be um, at any of the shows? I think I saw you at Western Hunting Expo last year in February. Um, do you have any plans to be at any of the shows? Um, not necessarily yet, but I think I will plan to attend that Western Hunting Expo with Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls, okay. and so be there and would yeah be happy to uh, meet any of the listeners out there and visit with them about elk hunting. Always a, always a fun thing to do for sure. Awesome, man. Well, God bless, and let's hope it keeps snowing. And, uh, yeah, just uh, tell uh, Barb and the girls hello, and I uh, just appreciate your friendship all these years. And, uh encourage anyone to reach out to Steve and uh, he's one of the best out there so um, reach out to Steve and I appreciate it Steve yeah thank you Jay and pass along my hello and well wishes to Gene as well and you know we're just so blessed to um, be able to hunt elk and uh, blessed by God to live in such a great country and you know blessed to be enjoying this Christmas season and be reminded of uh, uh, you know salvation through Jesus uh, through faith and his payment on the cross I mean it, it just doesn't get any better, um, just being able to have that assurance and, you know, just and then just be blessed in this life on earth to be able to hunt elk and enjoy that. Um, I just I just have to remind myself and pinch myself some when I want to get down in the dumps in the wintertime and I have elk hunter's depression that there's a lot to be thankful for, especially during yeah. this Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, buddy. God bless. Take care. God bless. Thank you, Jay. All right. Bye.